I wonder if those who are Christians have a particular verse or passage of the Bible that you particularly associate with your conversion. Maybe it's the words of Jesus from the Gospels, quite simply, follow me. Or maybe it's John 3, 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Or maybe it's Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Or maybe it's another verse entirely. God speaks to people in a variety of ways after all. But does anyone have the conversion text of 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16? However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear this, that name. I'm sure someone must have that in verse in mind, and they may even be here. But the association of that text with conversion must be pretty rare. Some evangelists like to pretend that when you become a Christian, everything is suddenly all right. You live your your rest of your life devoted to Jesus and doing all sorts of good works. And then you are suddenly transported to heaven. And indeed you are according to the Bible. But those evangelists have left out an important part of the story. And it wouldn't matter so much. But too many young Christians and older Christians too, as soon as they detect a small part of persecution or opposition, they decide that following Jesus wasn't such a good idea after all. They either stop following Jesus or decide to go undercover, so to speak. How many people have had that experience? I know I have at times. That's why the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write this chapter, I believe, to combat the notion that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, everything suddenly turns to roses. It surely does. The promise of eternal life guarantees it, but there is a time of trial first and it's no good pretending otherwise. Some Christians think that problems and suffering are a sign of failure, that 
we are getting something wrong. On the contrary, if we are suffering as a result of believing in Christ, we are instead getting something right. The passage starts with Christ, as all things must. But there's an important point to be made about chapter 4 and verse 1. You see, you might read it as Peter saying, suffering inhibits sin. But that's a mistake for two reasons. Firstly, there are those who suffer in all sorts of ways, but they keep on sinning, sinning because they haven't accepted God's forgiveness in Christ. Or they've considered it and rejected it. And secondly, Peter starts with Christ for a very good reason. Jesus didn't suffer to avoid sinning. He was sinless right from the start. Instead, he took on suffering and yet did not sin. And in doing so, he took on the sins of the world and defeated them on the cross. The two words translated in verse 1 as suffering have the same root meaning and it's important to realize that both mean a one-off event not a continuous event. In other words Christ suffered on the cross once for all and as a consequence, all those who believe in him have by God's grace also done with sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 10 says, The death he died, he died to sin once for all. We cannot go the way that Christ has gone if we try. To, we are we would get judged for our sins and found wanting but Christ has gone that way instead of us and we in, inherit the results of his suffering and resurrection and by God's grace we are admitted to the kingdom of God that's in one sense a mystery because I don't understand it really. But how it works, I don't know. But I know by the grace of God, it does work. Plenty of things happen when you become a disciple of Christ. But one thing is described in verse 2. That's somewhat tight. That's sometimes disregarded. God says, in effect, you have changed. You may, may not know it yet, but you have changed. Chapter 2, verse 10 
and chapter 4, verse 2, are in some ways making the same point. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but for the rather for the will of God. It's not that we also always get it right, but we we've actually been turned. We are like a soldier in a parade marching in one direction and the command comes about face just when the soldier was about to march off out of the parade ground and we are suddenly facing towards the will of God rather than against it. Verse 3 makes it plain. You may have done some of these things, or all of them, I don't know, in the past. But who here can say they have done none of these things? Who here can say, for example, they have not idolised something or some person? The contrast is clear between what we did previously when we did not know Christ and what we do now when we do know Christ. There are only two outcomes. Those who are in Christ and those who are not. Peter says in verse 6, The gospel is paramount. Some Christians have died by the time he, Peter, has written this letter. But he wants to stress that the gospel doesn't only persist for the time we are on earth. It persists eternally. Our earthly life will end sooner or later and everybody dies in the body. That's a matter of plain fact. But the human spirit is eternal and that's what is important. Verse 7 to 11 speak of spiritual gifts. Peter divides these into speaking and service, but in fact both are service of one sort or another. We haven't got time to delve into this, but look when you have time at 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. They are in many senses a parallel to these verses. 
Paul uses many more words, as is his habit, but they are effectively making the same point. And verse 8 says what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, Love each other deeply. What do you think it means? Love covers over a multitude of sins. Is it possible that we can have two reactions to sin as it affects us? Jesus told this parable. It's contained in Matthew chapter 18 and verses 12 21 to 35. And he originally told it to Peter alone, it seems. It concerns two servants of the king. One servant owed the king an unpayable debt, 10,000 bags of gold, according to the NIV, which stands for the debt that we all owe God. And the king forgave the whole lot. The first servant, far from being grateful to God, went out and found a second servant who owed him, not the king, you notice, 100 silver coins, a fraction of the debt he owed the king. And the servant, first servant had the second servant thrown into prison until he would pay. Peter was originally proud of himself for saying to Jesus, I forgive seven times, aren't I good? And Jesus said to Peter, you have been forgiven all this debt and you want to stop at seven times? All the gifts of God gives are gifts of service of one sort or another. No gift is superior to any other because the same God gives all the gifts. What matters is that the gifts are used in service, whether to those inside the church or outside. And acknowledging God the giver, not for personal gain. What do you make of the word suffering from verse 12 onwards? It's important to realise that Peter doesn't use the word suffering in the general sense of illness or poverty or any other thing to which we are all subject. He uses the word in its specific sense of suffering because of Christ. Verse 14 
makes it very plain. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, the world is divided many ways, but the one way that is important is those who have faith in the one true God and those who don't. The good news is that you and everyone can cross over from those who don't have faith to those who do by the simple act of putting your faith in Jesus for redemption. But without that, the two groups are as far apart as it's possible to be. Put it this way, the disciple of the world doesn't understand the disciple of Jesus. And the disciple of Jesus rejects totally the way of the world. Look at it another way. There have been a number of instances throughout history when t where two sides have sat down at a peace table and tried to work out their differences. And that's for the most part good and right. It involves compromise and seeing the other person's point of view. But the two sides of people who follow the world and people who follow God can never be at peace. But neither are we at war because we all follow all because we all followed the world at some point 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11 says since then we know what it is to fear the lord we try to persuade others that's what we are left on earth to do, persuade others, while there is still yet time. Because as verse 7 puts it, the end of all things is near. Verse 15 puts it another way. What is the opposite of suffering for Christ? It is suffering for a crime, murder or stealing, for example. Plainly, that isn't suffering for Christ. Well, that's all right then, said Peter's readers. We haven't done any of those things. But then Peter adds a third one, meddler. The King James says, Busybody. That's cutting closer to home, I think. Mandy gave us her favourite Greek word last week. And the word that is used here, it's on screen right now, 
isn't my favourite, but exactly, but it's used only once in the New Testament. I won't attempt to pronounce it. The fact is, you can't claim you are suffering for Christ, when in fact you are simply meddling or being a busybody. In other words, the reason for your suffering is relevant. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 20 describes some things Paul was afraid he would find in the church at Corinth. He lists them, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. Do you notice a similarity between the list Peter gives in his letter and the list Paul gives in his? I can spot one thing. All of these sins are based on the principle that you are the most important person. In other words, they are not based on service. God's church is based on love and service. You know that old saying that the word sin has an I in the middle. That only works in English and it's not an infallible rule. God wants you to look after yourself too. But so many sins are about me, myself, I. God's church is a community and we must love each other and love God above all. Which brings us back to verse 16. Praise God that you bear that name. Don't be ashamed or apologetic because you bear the name that is above every name and to which every knee must eventually bow. Do you believe that? Verse 17 contains the word judgment. It's in some respects a loaded word with will Christians be judged by God? Yes, they will be. And the judgment is not guilty because of Jesus and the redemption he has brought. But judgment in verse 17, I think, means a different kind of judgment. We all of us have unwanted characteristics, things which are not fit for the kingdom of God. I do, I do in any case. God wants us to, God wants to refine us and to make us fit for the kingdom of God. 
and that involves some modification of our lives and judgment. The picture on the screen is gold ore in its natural state. It's in many ways hard to recognise that, which eventually will turn into a precious gold object. It starts out as a piece of rock, but all gold started out that way, and we did too. The Lord God wants to improve some things and get rid of others, and that sometimes involves hard choices for us to make, but it's all for the good. That, I think, is the meaning of verse 18. One further thought. Verse 19 contains the word commit. It's actually a banking term, equivalent to a deposit. It worked like this. When in the ancient world you went on a journey, you had the problem of what to do with your money. You couldn't leave it under the bed. Someone might steal it. And the banks, in the modern sense, didn't exist. So, what you did was to find a trustworthy neighbour and get them to look after your money for you. Jesus told a parable about that, and it's the parable of the talents, you see. Peter made it plain under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. If you find yourself suffering because Christ, because of Christ, you should deposit all that you have and all that you are to God and trust God with everything. Amen.